From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Shingles is a viral infection that causes a painful rash, most often appearing as a single stripe of blisters that wraps around one side of your torso or one side of your body. While it's not life-threatening, shingles can be very painful, and there are some potential long-term complications. On today's program, we'll discuss treatment and prevention of shingles with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn about treatment for cleft lip and cleft palate. And we'll hear what's new in the fifth edition of the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, almost one out of every three people in the U.S. will develop shingles in their lifetime. And the risk goes up as you get older. In fact, if you can make it to 85, your risk of getting shingles is probably 50%. Shingles, as you may know, is that painful, blistery rash that happens when the chickenpox virus is reactivated. It's like a jolt chickenpox, I guess you could say. It's the worst. You had it? I have had it, yes. When it comes to shingles, some common questions arise. Is shingles contagious? And maybe more importantly, how can I prevent shingles in the first place? Here to discuss this and other infectious disease topics is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Tosh. Hey, thanks for having me. Dr. Tosh, good to have you. So tell us about shingles, herpes zoster, and why it is that, for whatever reason, the chickenpox virus in your body would all of a sudden become reactivated. Sure. When people get chickenpox, the infection doesn't actually go away. They get it, they get a fever, they get these rashes, but the virus sort of stays in the nerves for the rest of your life. Dormant. Dormant. And your immune system, specifically called the cellular immune system, keeps it at bay. And over time, people's immune system just starts to wane. And especially with age, people's cellular immunity will wane. And so the older you get, uh, your immunity to varicella zoster virus, the one that causes chickenpox, will start to decrease. And so this immune system that is keeping the virus in the nerves, keeping it at bay, at some point will fail. And then then the virus sort of comes out from the nerve and then goes into the, the skin and causes these very painful blisters. More importantly, however, is there's a complication called post-herpetic neuralgia, which after the, sh- the the actual blisters have gone away, people can have that pain, long-lasting, debilitating, for years, potentially for the rest of their life. And it happens to 20% of people who have shingles. It's Isn't a, that about right? It's about right, and it's a real problem. And that's really what we're trying to prevent. And so there have been now two vaccines, one a live vaccine and now a newer killed vaccine, basically, that helps people boost their cellular immune response to varicella zoster virus so that their immune system is able to keep the virus at bay for much longer. If the shingles shows up along a nerve path, which is what it usually does, is that the only thing that it does? It is always on some sort of nerve path, isn't it? It uh, usually is. Okay. The vast majority of circumstances, that is the case. We, we call it uh, a dermatomal, meaning that 
uh, from the nerves that are innervating the skin. Uh, those nerves are, the virus in those nerves are reactivated and it goes down those paths and activates that. Which is why you get it down one arm or on one side of your face, then not the other. Usually. So does the chickenpox virus, does that lay dormant in your nerves? Why does it show up in the nerve path when it doesn't do that when you've got chickenpox? It uh, does lay dormant in the nerve cell. Huh. Uh, now, I said usually and most often it's single dermatomas, mm-hmm. we call them. But occasionally, if people have really severe reductions in, in their immunity, people have had organ transplants or on chemotherapy, you know, that virus, the reactivation can go all over and mm-hmm. call it disseminated. And that can cause, well, disease all over, but it's also caused really bad things, mm-hmm. including hepatitis, which is usually fatal, meningitis, pneumonia, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so uh, it is usually self-limited in terms of the uh, the rash, but especially in people who have bad immune systems, it can be really, really bad. Is it contagious? So when people have the eruption of the blisters, so we're talking about reactivation or shingles, uh, the virus is there and it is contagious. So somebody who is not immune to chickenpox, if they were to be exposed to somebody with shingles, they wouldn't develop shingles. They would develop chickenpox. Chicken wow. And so the recommendation really right now is for everyone over age 50 to get the, the new vaccine, uh, which is uh, much better than the old one and really uh, uh, efficacious. We're looking at 90% range, even uh, into advanced years. And it's called Shingrix. Yes. All right. And it is available. There was in limited supply there for a while, but now pretty much widely available. Uh, I think we're still running into manufacturing delays. The uh, Really, it's, it's been such an amazing vaccine, and the demand for it has been high. Is it better to wait for that or take the previous one that's not as good? It depends on your risk profile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but honestly... Um, I, I, at this point, I would wait uh, and, and get this newer vaccine um, unless there is a, a strong consideration while well, we really need to do this now. Now, if you catch shingles early, mm-hmm. is there a treatment? Is there an, an uh, antiviral medication that might help? There are. So there are antiviral medications that uh, would be very effective in reducing the symptoms. And actually, these are the same antivirals that are used to treat uh, herpes simplex, so cold sores or genital herpes, uh, valacyclovir, acyclovir. These are all drugs that are, are, are available, and they are effective against uh, many of the herpes viruses, including herpes simplex 1 and 2, but also varicella zoster virus, which is also a, a herpes virus. But you have to catch it really early, right? I mean, it doesn't do any good if, the, if you've got the blisters and have been there for a week, right? At, at a week, it's probably not going to be helpful. Uh, but if it is early on, yeah, I think the the antivirus is going to be useful. Chicken pox, incredibly itchy. That's the big problem there. For shingles, they are so painful. Can you just take a pain medication to get you through your shingles outbreak? I mean, it is crazy painful. That's the, the hallmark is the pain. And sometimes your your routine kinds of pain medications may not touch it because it's kind of a nerve pain. Oh, man. And so, yeah, we can give ibuprofen or acetaminophen, uh, but sometimes we need to uh, give some say, nerve pain kinds of medication 
uh, to help people who have who have pain from shingles. All right, we've been talking about shingles with infectious disease specialist Dr. Patish Tosh. Remember, the new vaccination is called Shingrix. You need two doses, uh, anywhere between eight, uh, two months and six months apart. Right? right, Shingrix. Everybody over the age of fifty. Right on. All right, time for a short break. When we come back, we'll tackle some other infectious disease hot topics this summer. Everything from chikungunya. Chika. Who? Chikungunya. Chikungunya. We'll get the pronunciation. Chikungunya. Yeah, to Zika. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back with Dr. Patish Tosh, an infectious disease specialist at the Mayo Clinic. We have... Totally covered shingles. Uh, and now we're going to hit some other topics. And, and I want to start with Lyme disease because everybody in Minnesota and I think it's the northern part of the United States uh, mainly, they're worried about Lyme disease. As well, they, they should. You know, this is one of a number of uh, infections that can be transmitted by ticks. And often we will see the peak of, of Lyme disease, Ehrlichia, Babesia, these sorts of uh, tick-borne diseases in late spring and early summer. Is Lyme disease more prevalent now than it used to be, or are we just better at catching it? Because there was a while there that people would have Lyme disease, go in to their doctor, the telltale bullseye rash wouldn't be there or whatever, and it would be three months later they'd finally figure out, oh, it is Lyme disease. The, the question about whether there's more of it uh, is I mean that's still up for debate. Sure. And uh, some seasons we've just seen a lot more Lyme than others. Uh, and it is important that we make a distinction between uh, some really confirmed uh, Lyme diseases, uh, including cutaneous Lymes with a bullseye rash. It can also infect your heart, so cardiac Lyme, uh, where it affects actually the elect- electrical uh, system oh there. It can get into your brain, neuroborreliosis, as we call it. Uh, get into your joints and these sort of things. And so uh, certainly if people who have had untreated Lyme disease, it can have some severe complications. So what what are the symptoms? And if you do have these symptoms, you should go in and see your physician because there is a blood test for Lyme disease, isn't there? There is, uh, and it's important to know when to use that test. So when people have that bullseye rash and they're feeling ill, so they often it's fevers, muscle aches, joint pains, um, uh, headaches are often accompanied by this, and they have this rash, the blood test that's looking at antibodies is often going to be negative. Hmm. Uh, I mean, they have other things where you're looking, actually amplifying the bug itself, so by PCR, and those, those can be uh, more useful in the acute setting. But often if you have that right constellation of, of symptoms, headaches, fevers, muscle and joint pains, and you've uh, been outside, whether or not you remember a tick bite or not, uh, and you have a bullseye rash, that's enough to treat. And, in fact, I wouldn't test them uh, because the test could come back as a false negative. There's other uh, people who have not been treated, and they develop fevers and these other say, headaches, things with their heart or with their joints, including swelling. That's where we look at more advanced Lyme disease. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, misinformation on the Internet on things like chronic Lyme, um, where... Um, you know, people will Google about really um, things about uh, fatigue, um, where or un- some unexplained symptoms that are not you know, consistent with what we have as Lyme disease, and uh, un- unfortunately they're they're getting diagnosed with uh, what's called chronic Lyme, but that doesn't uh, exist, if you will, medically. 
uh, and doesn't get better with what is often prescribed as prolonged courses of intravenous antibiotics, which ends up being far more dangerous um, than what the people are actually going through. And what is the treatment, and is it curative? So when people have uh, confirmed Lyme disease, there are several different antibiotics that are going to be helpful. Uh, And uh, it is curative. So if people have cutaneous Lyme disease, we're looking at you know, a 10 to 14 day course of a couple of different antibiotics. So you could use doxycycline. That's tried and true. So it's one. Ba- bacterial disease. Uh, it's a spirochete, uh, s- similar to syphilis. Um, yeah, but it'd be basically a bacterial disease and it's treatable with antibiotics. Now, if people have it in their brain or in their joint or in their heart, you may end up using different antibiotics for a more, uh, prolonged period of time, but we're looking at, you know, tops about four weeks. And then you can still cure it even if it's in the brain or the heart? Yes. That's All right. Good. Now I have a recipe for chicken gunya, but that's not <laughs> what you're going to talk about. How do you, first of all, how do you pronounce it? Chikungunya? Uh, chicken gunya. Chicken gunya. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds delicious. <laughs> what is it? Yeah. So, how, how do you, you pronounce it? So <laughs> chicken gunya is a, is a vector-borne disease that you do not want to get. Spread by a certain kinds of mosquitoes often in the tropics, although we are starting to see cases in southern parts of the United States, Florida, et cetera. And it can be just harsh, high fevers, bone pain. And some of the muscle and joint pains that follow can can be for, for a while. And it's the mosquitoes that are the trouble. Ticks and those mosquitoes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not encouraging people to just Dig a hole and create a bunker. Uh, like you do have to live your life. But there are things you can do to prevent getting bitten by these insects or other or arthropods. If you're going to go out into the deep woods, uh, certainly cover up. Use uh, insect repellent that contain you know, 20 to 30 percent DEET. Uh, if it's really going to be out there, you can use permethrin-laden uh, clothing, to, which is an insecticide. Uh, to prevent getting bitten or, or uh, you know, these ticks and mosquitoes from getting on you. All right, food poisoning. It seems like every day or every week we're hearing about another case or cases of food poisoning, and it's the vegetables and it's the lettuce and it's oh, different the kinds of lettuce. bugs. Yeah. <laughs> so what's going on? So uh, there's a few uh, distinctions, and when we talk about food poisoning, we're often talking should be talking about a toxin mediated type of syndrome. For example, Staphylococcus aureus, staph infections, uh, they can produce a toxin that can make people really sick. And classic is from, you know, potato salad that's been sitting out, people violently ill with vomiting and diarrhea. Um, but then we're looking at, uh, bacterial multiplication. That's not really, uh, technically food poisoning, but we get, we're talking about the same kind of thing where if it's contaminated with a bacteria like, Salmonella or E. coli uh, that can cause disease. We we see this throughout the throughout the food supply, and things can get contaminated at any point from where it's made to how it's collected to how it's processed to you know cross contamination within somebody's kitchen, and so the entire <laughs> scope of of how of something coming up from seed to the point where somebody is consuming it, there's a potential for contamination. With that romaine lettuce, that issue in Arizona, if I would have washed it off more, that's not going to help in this case because it was in the lettuce itself, right? Right. So it is being grown in contaminated water. So it is in the lettuce itself. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Hey, where are we at with Zika? So I, I think a couple of years ago I came here saying the sky was falling. <laughs> and interesting thing. So uh, Zika is still out there. And what happened initially is you have, it will happen with any outbreak, is if you have a population that is immunologically naive, meaning people who are not immune. And uh, in this case with Zika, you have it spreading from mosquito to mosquito from people who are infected and have lots of virus in their body, which makes it easier for a mosquito to pick up the virus and then give it to somebody else. So you have a large number of people who are viremic and a large population who have not been infected. But in the winter months, you have fewer and fewer people who are going to actually be viremic. And so, viremic meaning sorry, carrying the virus. Uh, carrying the virus, really, the viruses uh, in high l- levels in their blood. And so over time, you have more and more people who are naturally become immune because they've been infected. And by that means, there are fewer and fewer people who are viremic at any one time. And so for people traveling to a uh, Central American country from the United States, they are now less likely to encounter a, a mosquito sure. that has bitten somebody who is viremic. But that doesn't mean that's not going to happen because you still have populations where people are could still be viremic in those areas. So the, the virus is not gone, but the chances of it becoming endemic in a part of the world that doesn't already have the virus circulating becomes lower just because those the pool of people uh, who could potentially give it to a mosquito is much less. So we've sort of dodged a bullet there. I don't think we've dodged it. Oh, okay. So we have an entire population in the United States that are immunologically naive. And we have people who are traveling to uh, parts of uh, South and Central America where this is still endemic. And so it is still, should be on our radar, that you can have people come back and, and let's say, introduce the virus into a... uh, uh, immunologically naive population, and then it can spread like wildfire. All right, we'll keep worrying about it then. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and you know right. when it comes to that foodborne illness thing? Yeah. Stick with hot dish. Yeah. <laughs> Everything will be fine. <laughs> Not to worry. <laughs> All right, we've been talking about shingles and other infectious diseases with a Mayo Clinic infectious disease specialist, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Dr. Tosh, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about treatment for cleft lip and cleft palate birth defects. And later on in the program, the latest edition of the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. I am Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. With roughly 1 in 10 Americans over 65 living with Alzheimer's, any progress in the effort to fight the disease would be a welcome advancement for millions of people. Experts at Mayo Clinic are cautiously optimistic that a new antibody known as BAN2401 will continue to show an ability to delay progression of Alzheimer's, reducing amyloid accumulation in the brain as it has during early phase clinical trials. Dr. Ronald Peterson is the director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. He says Alzheimer's is the most costly disease to our society right now. There is no cure for Alzheimer's, and all currently available drugs can do is treat symptoms. But this new drug's purpose is to slow the progression of the disease. 
Dr. Peterson says the drug's approach to Alzheimer's treatment is based on what's called the amyloid hypothesis, which is basically that certain proteins deposit in the brain lead to death of nerve cells, and eventually symptoms happen. Even though it's an early phase two trial, the results suggest the drug may remove one of the toxic proteins from the brain that causes Alzheimer's disease. If the results continue to hold up through continued testing and trials, it may eventually be possible to offer the drug to people to prevent or delay the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease from developing. Again, Dr. Peterson says he's cautiously optimistic and the results are encouraging, but turning this into a treatment could be a long way off. In the meantime, in addition to drug interventions to treat symptoms of the disease, he says people can make lifestyle modifications to lower their risk. He recommends people stay intellectually active, stay involved in their social networks, and from a dietary perspective, perhaps a heart-healthy diet, a Mediterranean diet, may be useful in delaying the onset and slowing the progression of the disease. Now, moving on, most people know that when the weather heats up, drinking plenty of water can prevent dehydration. But you may not know that consuming lots of liquid in the heat of summer may also reduce your risk of developing kidney stones. Dr. Ivan Porter II, a Mayo Clinic nephrologist, says more patients go to the doctor with painful kidney stones in summer than during any other time of the year especially if you've had them before. He says when thinking about what a kidney stone is, you have to think about what a kidney does. The kidney filters out toxins, takes out things that shouldn't be there, and the way it gets rid of this is by putting it into the urine. If you get dehydrated, your urine can become concentrated to the point where stones form. Dr. Porter has summertime tips to help you prevent kidney stones. First, drink plenty of fluid, 8 to 10 glasses a day. Stay away from overly salty processed foods and meats. That increased sodium will increase your risk of kidney stones. And if you've ever had a kidney stone, you know how painful they can be. So listen to these tips. They could help. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cleft lip and cleft palate are among the most common birth defects, resulting in openings or splits in the upper lip, the roof of the mouth, called the palate, or both. Cleft lip and cleft palate result when facial structures that are developing in an unborn baby don't completely close. Having a baby born with a cleft can be upsetting to the parents, and I'd say grandparents too. (laughs) But cleft lip and cleft palate can be corrected. It's done with a series of surgeries to restore normal function and achieve a more normal appearance with minimal scarring. Here to discuss treatment for cleft lip and palate is Dr. John Voles. Dr. Voles is an orthodontist in the Cleft and Craniofacial Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Voles. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Voles, nice to meet you. Nice Thanks. to have you on the program. Thanks. You know, we all know somebody uh, with cleft lip or cleft palate, so uh, it seems like it's a fairly common uh, a problem, but how common is it really in the U.S.? Usually about 1 in 700 births are cleft palate or cleft That's pretty lip common. Lip. Is there anything more, any birth defect more common? No, I think this is about the most common of all of them. Top of the list. Yes. And craniofacial problems. Is it a genetic problem? Is it a birth defect? What what exactly is it? Uh, some are syndromic or, or genetic. Other ones are just spontaneously happen. So does it tend to run in families? If if one of your parents has had a cleft lip or palate, are you more likely? Not necessarily. It just depends if genetically based or just a on you know just a common uh, happening during during the gestation period. 
is with uh, more prenatal care this generation and then previous generations or the last few generations, are there less cleft palates, cleft lips? I don't think so. I, I think because it happens so early in the process that sometimes you don't even know you're pregnant and when it could be happening already, the, the cleft right. palate and lip are developing. Yeah. Now, the ultrasound of the newborn, of the fetus, have, have, they've gotten so good. Are you able to detect a cleft lip and palate before yeah. birth? Those 3D ones that yeah, you can see. About the, you know, about the 16 to 20 weeks uh, into the pregnancy, they can do the ultrasounds, and they're pretty distinctive. It's got to be at the right angle, and sometimes you still miss them, but it's really helped a lot to prepare the family and get them ready and get them over to us because a lot of times we're going to be doing uh, things right after birth uh, for the cleft palate uh, and cleft lip. Oh, it, you are. Is it better for recovery to do this surgery right away, or why not wait a little while? Well, the surgery usually for the repair of the cleft uh, lip is usually done about 12 to 20-some weeks. But uh, we do some pre-surgical uh, modeling or molding of the palate and the lip. Uh, previous to that, right after they're born, we usually take an impression about maybe two to three days after they're born if we can, and we start the process uh, of molding um, the lip and the, the pieces in the, in the palate to, together. All, always in, in preparation for the ultimate surgery, surgery that's required. I mean, there's no other treatment for this. Uh, there's other things that they can do. They can do lip adhesions and things like that. But nowadays, it's more common probably to do the NAM appliance, nasal alveolar molding appliance, which is a little like denture device that we make, manufacture, and we kind of mold the, the child's uh, developing uh, arches together and then make it kind of close that cleft site down so the surgeon could do a better job with the lip repair. They're not stretching that tissue quite as far. I would imagine the lip repair isn't as in is invasive as the palate repair. No, the palate repair does come a little bit later, like 10 to 12 months after the child is born, the palate will appear, but the lip repair is done pretty much 12 weeks or so after the child is born. Now, does a, an, an orthodontist do all of this, or is plastic surgery involved, or are you a one-man show? or? No, this is definitely a team effort team. from start to finish. I mean, it's it's from birth, maybe before birth, preparing the individuals and the family, and all the way up until 18, 20 years old that the, the team is working together at different points. And it's stage. It's not a continuum. It's definitely kind of staged. Each, each member has a different involvement, and we try to team up and do things that maybe require surgery. You want to keep the surgeries to a minimum, so we try to do surgeries that maybe – fall back on one another, you know, where ENT could do something, put ear tubes in, uh, we could do, they could do the lip repair, they could do other things along the way as, and do it in one surgery instead of having multiple anesthesias and things like that. What types of problems does a cleft palate present for a child? A feeding is probably the biggest thing because there's no, a lot of times there's no palate, so they have to use different types of bottles to feed. The parents have to use different types of bottles because there's no palate to push against with their tongue to get the the, the, the formula or the you know the milk into them. So, so the palate is the roof of the mouth. Right, there's yeah. a roof of the mouth exactly. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And so the biggest problem is is feeding early on. Exactly. Right away is the big thing to start gaining weight and get get them out of the hospital. So some of them will take a couple days to get out of the hospital, where normally you could be gone maybe within a day or two. Some are there a couple of weeks until they can get their body weight up and they're not losing. And I assume that this is not a, a problem that we only see in the United States. There must be other countries where cleft palate develops in, in newborns that uh, 
aren't as fortunate as the kids here who can can get it repaired. What happens if it's never repaired? Uh, really, um, I think it's more as kind of psychological or social type of thing because really if you just left the cleft lip and cleft palate go, uh, growth will ha- be better. Speech probably, however, will not be. that. Mm-hmm. That's my, the main thing about the palatal closure, the lip repair, is getting the person to be able to speak right away in those first two to three years. And that's why we have a speech pathologist or speech therapist on the team with us because that's the first couple of years they're really trying to get that going along so they can speak and hear Ear tubes have to be placed sometimes so the patient can gain um, language skills pretty quickly. Otherwise, they fall behind pretty quickly, and then by the time they're you know in kindergarten or so, they're going to be behind the, the, the curve with the other individuals. We have been doing uh, multiple dental type of topics in anticipation of the anniversary, the centennial celebration. What has changed? I'm not saying that you've been here for all 100 years <laughs> by any means, but over the course of your practice, how has has this changed repairing the palate and the lip? I, I think so. I think the more involvement with the uh, nasal alveolar molding appliance, uh, before when I first got here, we used an appliance that was surgically done where we put it in, in place in the surgery. There would be a surgery done. We'd actually place it in the patient's mouth during the surgery, and the parents would turn it, and it would kind of close, bring mm-hmm. the segments together. However, we didn't have the option of kind of molding the nasal part of it. Which so the nasal is nose, but then you alveolar. What's, what alveolar is, is taken, you know, your upper jaw is kind of a, an arch form, and when the cleft is there, that arch form could be broken down into two pieces, one that's a little bit larger, and or it could be broken down into three pieces, where you have three pieces, the premaxilla, or where your, your anterior teeth are, your laterals and central incisors are, all forward, out of the mouth, they're, they're, they're protruding out. So what you're trying to do is bring that back into the mouth and, and kind of get it ready for the lip repair. All right. Did you really run the Boston Marathon? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> this year. How good for you was it called? Uh, it was cold, but you monsoon did it. rain, and a wind coming at you about 37 miles an hour. Is this the first time you've done it? First time we did Boston. I've done 37 really? marathons. Well, congratulations. He's my hero. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right, cleft lip, cleft palate with Mayo Clinic orthodontist Dr. John Bowles. Thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure meeting you. It's a pleasure doing this. Thanks. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn what's new in the latest edition of the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The Mayo Clinic Family Health Book was first published in 1990, and it has become a classic home medical reference, selling more than a million and a half copies. It's now in its fifth edition, and the first update since 2009 just occurred. The newly revised and illustrated volume offers the latest in medical knowledge and strongly emphasizes self-care. The Mayo Clinic Family Health Book is based on the expertise of hundreds of Mayo Clinic healthcare providers and the advice that they give their patients every day. Here to discuss is the medical editor of the latest edition of the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book, Dr. Scott Litton. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Litton. <laughs> well, thanks, Tom and Tracy. Happy to be here. So I knew that you were a highly respected internal medicine specialist and all-star and doctor to some stars. How did you ever get involved in editing books? Well, my entire career as a general internist taking care of patients, I've been involved in caring for patients and teaching patients how to care for themselves. 
So this seemed like just a natural progression when I had the opportunity to edit actually the last three copies of this book. Well, you have let's see it now. Our listeners uh, on the radio our, on obviously YouTube can't hear, they can but see. The yes. YouTube they can see it. It's beautiful. Thirteen hundred ninety-one pages. What we hope to be a one-stop shop for every family. And one of the best parts is my own <laughs> photograph on is the on the back. Yeah, on the back. <laughs> in case you so, want to see what I look that like. That was taken about 20 years ago, it looks like. <laughs> what has changed since 2009? Why do we need a fifth edition? Well, if you think back to 2009, the president was President Bush. Pittsburgh Steelers had won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Lots has changed. And that's what's changed in our country. When you think about what's changed in medicine, it's exponential. So because of the rapid changes in medicine, we felt it was very important to look at this book chapter by chapter with our wonderful group of expert clinicians at Mayo Clinic who all care for patients, who many do education and research, and they looked at each chapter. We got rid of things that were no longer as relevant, and we added in things that we needed to put in because things had changed. So how many contributors in that book? Uh, Tom, hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> and then what would happen is you would send a particular portion of the book out for editing to someone, and then they would send it back to you, and then you would go through it, and you had the final say. Yeah, we have a wonderful group of staff writers as well. So we made it a little easier for our editors to just decrease what was no longer relevant tell us what we needed to put in, then we'd let them look at it, and I'd have the final look. So give us an example of what's new in this edition. Well, there's many things new. One of the things is our genomic section about genetics and medicine. I don't know about you all, but I always found this a little confusing because there's genes and there's chromosomes and we're all more alike than we're different, but we have many differences among our own genetic makeup. And we took a chapter, fully revised it, made it very readable and interesting to, to page through. And in the future, probably not completely ready for prime time, but in the future, when you and I go to the doctor or our children go to the doctor, I'm sure that there will be a genetic image, a genetic template, just just like we do a, a photograph of the person in the medical record so we know who they are. And this genetic imprint will help physicians determine what medicines will work, what won't work, what doses work. And heaven forbid, if we have some sort of a major issue like a cancer which drugs are going to cure this cancer and which drugs are not. I want to ask you about the uh, the competition for this book because there are others out there. I went to Amazon, and what I found out was another highly recommended one is a book that you edited, and it's called Mayo Clinic A to Z Health Guide. Okay. Well, And it's got four and a half stars on Amazon. Yes. So which one should I buy? Well, Tom, I think you should buy both of the Mayo <laughs> Clinic books that I edited. Now, well, let's let's talk in ser all seriousness, though. Mayo Clinic, as we know, has a brand that is known across the world. And why is it branded so high? Because it is reliable information, reliable health information that can be trusted. 
Do any of us go to the Internet to look things up? Of course. I do frequently. Who's going to win the Kentucky Derby? I look (laughs) online to see that. But when you're looking for health information, we can't always trust what we see online, but we can trust something that's branded with Mayo Clinic. The A to Z Health Guide is essentially an abridged edition of this is 1300 91 pages, the other is a little shorter. And you can get the other one in paperback, and this one only comes in hardcover, right? <laughs> well, for now, yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, we're recording this on a very hot and humid day, and you said you've got some summertime news to share with the listeners. Yeah, there, there are some interesting things in every chapter of the book. One of them is medical emergencies and first aid. And one of the things that we recommend because families are out in their cars, they're driving to the beach or to the mountains to camp, every car, every family should have some sort of a first aid kit with them. And you can buy over-the-counter first aid kits, but some of them don't have a few of the things that we recommend. One thing that some people don't think about is we think about painkillers or Tylenol or ibuprofen, But we don't think about an aspirin. And it's always important to have an aspirin or two or three in your emergency kit because if somebody in your family or another family is suffering chest pain and a possible heart attack, the first aid while waiting for first responders is chewing an aspirin or two. If you had to pick your favorite part of the book, what would it be? Well, one of the things that differentiates our book from others is the part, a part that I'm very proud of, and it's making sense of your symptoms. Because when a patient has a symptom, they don't know the diagnosis. No one comes to the doctor saying, I think I'm having acute pancreatitis or my shoulder is separated. <laughs> they will say, I have, I have pain, yeah. in the, pain in my belly or I have shoulder pain. And we go through, in a very organized way, every type of symptom from shortness of breath to pain in the joints to pain in the abdomen and the like. And we go through all the possibilities and give some key points. So a patient can either be very reassured that what they have doesn't sound at all like what they were worried about, or they can help their physician or their caregiver think because they put some thought into it, they can help the caregiver come up with a better diagnosis and save a number of tests, make their history much more clear. All right, Dr. Scott Litton, who is the medical editor and a Mayo Clinic internal medicine specialist. So the book, uh, you know, I looked on Amazon. It's so new it hasn't even been rated yet, but it looks like a five-star deal to me. <laughs> Wherever fine books are sold, you can pick up a copy. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dr. Litton. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.